Um, let me just recap two weeks ago uh, what we read. So we opened up the book of Ezekiel. We read Ezekiel chapter 1. And we, um, <coughs> we, we saw this guy, Ezekiel. We, we meet Ezekiel. He's a, it's on his 30th birthday. And he's sitting by a canal in a suburb of the city of Babylon. And what had happened was five years earlier, Ezekiel was at home in Jerusalem and King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, swung through with his army and he threatened the city and to make him kind of go away that, you know, he took a bunch of captives. The people gave him a bunch of captives of some of the like more um, the top of society kind of people. So he was one of those people. He was he was training to be a priest. So him and Daniel from the book of Daniel, you know, the lion's den, the whole thing. A bunch of these guys, they get taken captive with their families and they get marched. I forget the exact amount. It's like 1,500 miles or something, right? They get marched across the desert uh, and resettled in Babylon as farmers. So he's sitting by the Kibar Canal, this little, you know, the little irrigation canal, and he's bummed out because today's his 30th birthday. And on his 30th birthday, according to the book of Leviticus, was when he was supposed to become a priest. That's like, that's like you know, your installation day is your 30th birthday. So he's bummed out because he's 1,500 miles or whatever from home, and he doesn't get to be a priest. He trained his whole life for this one thing that he doesn't get to do anymore. And so he's sitting by this canal, sitting by the river, probably skipping rocks. I, I bet people have been doing that for a very long time. And he's skipping rocks across the water, and he's just bummed out. And he's complaining. He might have even been praying. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, he has this vision. And he looks up, and then the, the heavens, like the sky, opens up. And he sees this crazy vision, and he spends all of chapter 1 describing the vision to us. And if you remember, he kept saying that what he was seeing was in the likeness of something, in the likeness of something, because he had no categories to describe what it was he was looking at. So first what he sees, he looks down at the bottom of, he sees this big thing coming out of the sky, right? And he looks, and at the bottom of it, there's these four creatures, and they have four faces, and they have four wings and some of the wings are touching and they make a ton of noise when they move and next to them were these wheels and the inside the wheels was another wheel and it was like the original Cadillac Escalade spinners you know and he couldn't just like these gyroscope wheels and this whole thing was moving around and then he starts to look up above these creatures and he sees this he calls it the expanse right the great like this big platform and on top of the platform and this platform is like a uh, Revelation calls it the sea of glass. You know, it's this beautiful, like, glassy kind of sea-looking thing. And then he looks up a little more, and he sees a chair, a throne, and he's very impressed. And then he looks up a little more, and he sees uh, a guy. And he says, <clears throat> in <clears throat> at the end of chapter 1, he says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. So what he sees is this big chariot-looking thing that's carrying the throne room of God around. And the chapter ended with, and then I heard a voice, and then we stopped there. We didn't say what the voice said. So today we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Um, we're going to read chapter two and three, chapters 2 and 3 today. Um, so in a lot of Ezekiel, we're going to cover some serious ground. A lot of these sermons are going to be two or sometimes even three or four chapters, so... Uh, Hopefully shorter introductions, because we're going to run out of time otherwise. All right, here we go. Ezekiel 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak with you. So if you remember at the end of chapter 1, what happened was he sees the likeness of the, the glory of the Lord, and what does he do? He falls over, and he covers his head. He, he falls, he bows down, because he's in awe of the glory of the Lord. 
And so here now, the voice coming from the top of the throne, the guy sitting on the throne, says to Ezekiel, dude, get up. I, I've got, I got to talk to you, but I can't do it with your face in the ground. So Ezekiel stands up, and verse 2, as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me. So in this chapter, Ezekiel is now going to be commissioned by God himself as a prophet, as a, like a prophet priest. Now, um, there was a guy uh, back in the day, 1600s, uh, 1500s and 1600s, I think. Anyway, his name was John Calvin. You heard of this guy? Theologian, very famous theologian. Um, <clears throat> he was also a very prolific writer. Um, his work habits were ex like uh, crazy unhealthy. And he worked himself basically to death at the age of 54, he died. And he was not the kind of guy you want to model your life after taking care of himself. Well, anyway, while he was dying, he was sitting in bed dictating a commentary so he could get one more in before he died, right? And <clears throat> the very last thing he wrote was his commentary on the book of Ezekiel. And he only got like, I forget, into the chapter 20-somethings. And so I've been reading this commentary on Ezekiel prepping, and there's a lot of, it's really fantastic. Probably, I mean, the guy knew what he was talking about, right? Some of his best work. Anyway, in his commentary, he's, he was one of the only people I read that pointed this out. He said, when people think of Bible characters, we think of them as almost like superheroes or superhuman saints. And we think that they're working on this whole different spiritual level than us, something that we'll never be able to achieve. And all these guys are amazing, and they're just unrelatable. And Calvin says that most of us would look at a guy like Ezekiel uh, and think, boy, I bet there's a guy who was really strong in his faith, and he was really following God and obeying God, and then God showed up with this mission for him. But it seems like the, the opposite is actually true. Uh, we're about to read this massive call that God is going to place on the life of Ezekiel. But before he does it, before he asks anything from Ezekiel, what does he do? He fills him with the Spirit. Because in his own power, Ezekiel is just as useless as you or I. The only thing we know about Ezekiel uh, before God's Spirit enters him is what? He was pouting by the canal because it was his 30th birthday. He's sitting by the canal on his 30th birthday, probably pretty bummed out. That's all we really know about him. So he wasn't this super saint. And then this call of God kind of pushed him over the edge. Most likely, he was a loser, and God's spirit then came and transformed him into this great prophet. And I think that's a better way to think about it, because the good news is you're all losers too, and so am I, on our own. That's what we are. But empowered by the spirit, we're capable of the things that Ezekiel is even going to do. All right, keep going. Rest of verse 2. And he set me on my feet, and I listened to the one who was speaking with me. Verse 3. He said to me, son of man... I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious, to the rebellious pagans who have rebelled against me. So um, as we read the book of Ezekiel, God, I, I could have counted how many times, I don't know, 48 chapters, I'm guessing over 100 times God probably calls Ezekiel, the son of man. And there's a guy, his name's Daniel Block. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He, he wrote the book on Ezekiel. And in his book, he has a translation, and in his translation of Ezekiel, he doesn't translate this son of man. He translates it human. So every time we read this in his translation, it goes, uh, God said human, whatever. And that's the sense of the meaning in the book of Ezekiel. It means it's reminding Ezekiel who he is and who God is. You're human, and I'm God. But then you go to Daniel, who is a contemporary of Ezekiel. He also wrote a book, and he uses the same phrase. He talks about the son of man. 
But in, in Daniel, the phrase son of man doesn't mean human. It's this godlike. He says, I saw one like the son of man, and he was glowing and all this stuff. He's this godlike figure. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, uh, you know, was that 500 years later? And when Jesus shows up 500 years later, he starts calling himself the son of man. And, what he, and we saw this a lot in Luke. And what he means by that is he's kind of marrying these two terms, these two senses of the word. I'm the son of man from Daniel because I'm a godlike, you know, he's God. And I'm also the son of man from Ezekiel because I'm also a human. So it's kind of cool. So we're going to see this uh, a ton in the book of Ezekiel. And so uh, God tells him, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites. Uh, so his mission is to the Israelites. But here's the thing. Right now, the people of Israel, the people of God, are kind of scattered. There are some who still live in Jerusalem because the city hasn't all the way fallen yet. There are some who live in Babylon because two waves of exiles have already been taken to Babylon. And there's a whole bunch of them who have escaped to Egypt and live in uh, Alexandria <clears throat> and kind of around that area. So his mission is to all of these people. And look what God calls the Israelites. I'm sending you to the Israelites to the rebellious pagans. Now, literally in Hebrew, uh, the word there says, I'm sending you to the, the Israelites to the nations. It's kind of weird. It, nations and it's plural. So that's what it says, like if you read the ESV, which is the normal translation we use at this church. Um, for the book of Ezekiel, we're going to be reading the, ES, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB together. It's a little more thought for thought, which is why I like it for big chunks like this. But anyway, in the literal, literal version, like an ESV, it says it calls them the nations. So it's weird. Why does God call them that? Um, that word is almost always used by God to describe the pagan nations outside of the land of Israel, people who are not part of the covenant of Moses. Those Old Testament prophets always use that phrase, the nations. Um, and what they mean by that is not that there are nations in, like, when we think of another country, we think of there are different sovereign country with their own political system. But that's not really the sense of the word here. It's, it's not they're another country. It's they're a completely different religion, right? It's more in a religious sense than it is in like a political sense. And so the, people, the whole flow of the Old Testament, though, there's this tension where the people of God were called to be a light to the nations. He says, look, I'm going to separate. I'm going to take you guys. I'm going to make you a special people. And then the light is going to go out from you to these nations. And there's this... Um, <clears throat> Right, the tension is they're always messing it up. They're always doing the opposite. Instead of being a light, they're let, instead of influencing the nations, they're letting the nations influence them. And so it happens a ton throughout the Old Testament. We'll read in a couple of chapters, we're gonna learn all about the high places, which was this pagan practice of building altars at the top of mountains because that makes you closer to God. Or um, even like in, in the book of Samuel, when the people of God go to the prophet Samuel and they say, we want a king. And Samuel goes, why would you want a stupid king? You know, uh, He's going to do all this terrible stuff. And they go, well, because all, they all have kings and we want one just like all of those guys. So they're trying to be like the nations. Solomon, you know, King Solomon with the, you know, the, the saw the baby in half guy, right? So Solomon's downfall comes specifically because he takes wives he has multiple, like, you know, a thousand wives and concubines, and he takes them from all the nations, and he specifically was not supposed to have more than one wife, and he was specifically not supposed to take a wife from other religions and other nations, and he did, and they came, and they influenced the people, and they influenced him, and that was part of his downfall, 
And so we, we see this all throughout the, the book of Kings and the book of Samuel. The people are worshiping Baal and Astrith and all these other gods. They're, they're At some point, we'll talk about this later in Ezekiel, they even get to the point where they're practicing the child sacrifice that these pagan nations were doing. And they're burning their children and they're burying their children alive and all this stuff. And so it's now to the point where God shows up to Ezekiel and he says, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to the foreign nations. We've We've gone over the cliff to now you're not like the nations. You have become the nations. That's what God is telling the people. You have passed this point of no return. And so the CSB here translates this. um, I'm sending you to the rebellious pagans because that's the sense of the word, right? And the ESV, it says nations. All right, so building on that idea, continuing, it says the Israelites and their ancestors have transgressed me until this day. The descendants are obstinate and hard-hearted. I am sending you to them. And uh, you must say to them, this is what, okay, wait, real quick, at the end of verse four, ah, nuts, I don't think in this, the um, slides doesn't do what the actual translation does. If you read in the translation, I'm pretty sure, is the word Lord uppercase? Maybe not. Anyway, uh, I want to explain something to you real quick. We're going to pause from from my notes here, and let me just say this real fast. In Hebrew, there's a few words for God right? So there's like a word that means God, basically. That's the word Elohim. Um, But then there's God's name. What's God's name? What does he tell Moses when Moses says, who are you? Yeah. What's the like, uh, Yahweh, right? It's the word Yahweh. It means I am. I am eternal being. Now, there's something that I, you know, okay, I'm going to say this. The guys who translate the Bible are way smarter than me, okay? Like, and it's not even close, right? Uh, but there's one thing that bugs me about our English Bible translations. It's that we never, we translate the name of God. So usually when we see the word Yahweh in Hebrew, we translate it as Lord. So it'll sometimes say Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, right? Okay, so as much as I can, I meant to do this last time and I forgot to, but it's actually really interesting um, uh, to realize how often the name of God specifically shows up. So as we read through some of this, I've highlighted them in my thing here. I'm going I'm to read it like Yahweh, okay? So let's go back to this. This is what Yahweh says, whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. So the audience now, what, what God is telling Ezekiel, here's your audience, is these rebellious pagan Israelites. And this is going to play out in the whole next like 20-something chapters of the book of Ezekiel is why are they guilty? Why are they rebellious? The message is this. You have to say whatever I say. You don't get to change the message. You don't get to decide if it's something that people need to hear. God says you're just the mouthpiece. Um, I don't know what show this is because I've only seen clips of it on Reddit and stuff, and it always is actually kind of annoying and I never really watch it, but there's some TV show or web show or something out there where three idiot guys sit behind a camera in front of a bunch of monitors, and uh, it's like a prank show, and now one guy goes out in front. Does anybody know what show I'm talking about? Yeah, that could be it. I've never, okay, I've only seen little clips of it, but the, the three guys are there, and they're like, go up to this girl and say, and whatever, whatever the people say in the ear, the guy in the front, like, the guy out there has to say, and it's always embarrassing and whatever. Okay, that's what God is telling Ezekiel. This is how this is going to work. You're on this, what's it called, Practical Jokers? Practical. Impractical Jokers. You're out there, oh yeah, I think that's right, yeah. You're out there, and you got to just say whatever I'm going to tell you to say. And here's the results. 
The results aren't up to you. You're not responsible for the message. He says in verse 5, whether they listen or whether they refuse to listen. God tells Ezekiel, that's not the point. The point is not whether the people turn back to me or whatever. You don't have to worry about that. All you have to worry about is saying what I tell you to say. So you can imagine Ezekiel's response. Well, that sounds pretty scary. I didn't sign up for this. I was just pouting by the canal, just trying to have an afternoon, you know, like trying to have my day off. Verse 6, he keeps going. But you, son of man, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of their words, even though briars and thorns are beside you and you live among scorpions. Don't be afraid of their words or discouraged by the look on their faces, for they are a rebellious house. Speak my words to them, whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are rebellious. So three times in that section, he tells them, don't, he, God tells Ezekiel, don't be afraid. Why would he have to tell him that three times? Because he's afraid, right? Um, and he says, What's gonna hap- what, what you're about to go through is going to be tough. It's like walking through a field that's full of thorn bushes and scorpions. You ever walked through like a forested area and you didn't realize what you're walking, and you, look, you cut your legs on some thorns or something? It stinks, right? This is what... God tells Ezekiel, this is what it's going to be like. But he tells him, be bold anyway. Even though this is what's going to happen, I need you to be bold. Verse 8, and you, son of man, uh, listen to what I tell you. Do not be uh, rebellious like the people, I'm sorry, like that rebellious house. So God tells him, now I need you to make sure that you're the one influencing them, not the other way around. I'm not sending you out among this rebellious house to be influenced by them. The mob mentality is a powerful thing, right? And Ezekiel is going to be kind of this lone wolf out there telling these rebellious people. He's going to be tempted to go along. And God says, that's not your call. I need you to be the light. I need you to influence them. He keeps going. Uh, the second half of eight. Open your mouth and eat. Okay, this is where it gets weird. The book of Ezekiel is weird, by the way. I'm just letting you know. We're going to read a lot of very weird stuff. So this is what he says. All right, Ezekiel, now that we're done with that, open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Uh, This is how Melissa always tricks me into eating some gluten-free garbage. She's like, just eat it. I'll tell you what it is after. I don't fall for this, right? Mm -mm. So I looked, verse 9, and I saw a hand reaching out to me, and there was uh, a written scroll in it. That's even worse than Melissa. Well, I don't know. Have you seen that pasta, that gluten-free pasta? It's It's basically a scroll. Uh, parchment. Anyway, uh, when he unrolled it before me, it was written on the front and the back, words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written on it. And then chapter 3, verse 1. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll. That's really weird. Eat the scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with the scroll that I am giving you. So I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Well, that's a weird turn, isn't it? So the imagery, right? Remember, this is a vision. He, this whole thing is like a, it's a vision. He's sitting by the Kibar Canal, but he's having this vision. And in that vision now, he says, take this scroll and digest it. That's like the imagery of eating, right? You, 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 you take something in, you digest it. So before Ezekiel can speak the words of God, he has to eat the words of God. Let the word of God feed his soul. That's the image. But there's something interesting here. He says, eat the scroll. What is the scroll? A couple verses ago, I said, it's a words of lamentation, and it's like judgment, right? Scrolls um, also usually weren't double-sided back in the day. They were one-sided. So this is weird. It's this scroll of the judgment of God, 
and it's filled up on both sides, which is like a really weird, you know, we have paper, all our paper is like double-sided, you know, we always print double-sided, but they didn't really do it because of the way it would wipe the ink off and stuff. But God says, look, um, I have written my judgment down and I have run out of room. It's, it's double-sided. And so this is how horribly the people have rebelled. And so he eats this scroll, this, you know, and it's the scroll of judgment of God. It's double-sided because God is so upset with his adulterous people. And then what does it taste like? It's sweet as honey. He eats the message of judgment. The next thing you would expect is, boy, that was sour. That was gross. That tasted like Melissa's gluten-free bread, you know? <laughs> you guys have seen this stuff, right? It's like cardboard. Anyway, that's what you're expecting. But it's not. It's sweet as honey. Um, this is taken from Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Right? Even the words of judgment coming from God are so perfect and right that when um, Ezekiel sees them, he says his truth is precious and it's sweet as honey. It, the good news is the book of Ezekiel is not the final word of judgment. Right? This book leads people to the grace of God. And we'll get into that as we go through the whole book, you know through the flow of the book. All right, now big giant section, verse four. We're gonna read four to 11. Then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or of a difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to the many people of unintelligible speech or a difficult language whose words you, can't, you cannot understand. No doubt, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not want to listen to you because they do not want to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened, hard, uh, sorry, hard-headed and hard-hearted. Say that a hundred times fast. Look, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I have made your forehead like a diamond, harder than a flint. Don't be afraid of them or discouraged by the look on their faces, though they are a rebellious house. Verse 10, next he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully to all my words that I speak to you and take them to heart. That's key. Listen to my words, take them to heart. Go and tell the people, the exiles, and speak to them. Tell them this is what Yahweh God, what Yahweh Elohim says, whether they listen or refuse to listen. So he says next, you're not going to a foreign nation. That'd be easier. If you had to learn a whole new language, right? Um, I have a friend who was a missionary, and she was a missionary to this people group uh, actually, I don't want to say it because this is podcast is going online. But she was a missionary to a people group in France, a people group from Africa, a bunch of immigrants from Africa who were living in France. And so she had to learn French. And while she was on staff with me at the old church, her name was Linda. She's super sweet. And while she was on staff, I remember her just spending a ton of time sitting there and learning French. French is hard to learn. And it's even harder to learn like Linda was in her 60s, I think, when she learned French to go and witness to these, these folks. Um, and she moved to France and, you know, and it was a, like a hard, long process for her. And she had tutors and all sorts of stuff. And God says it would be easier for you to do that than for what I'm about to send you to. Because the house of Israel, they're not going to listen to you. Right? It'd be easier if you were Jonah and you had to go to the Ninevites. Right? This foreign land. But you're not one of those prophets. You're, you're going to your people. And he keeps saying it. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to you. God tells Ezekiel that same thing like a handful of times. Whenever we see something like that repeated in Scripture, we have to stop and ask, why is it repeated so many times? We've got to try to figure that out. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to sort of place ourselves in the situation. Why would God have to tell me this a whole bunch of times? 
Why would God have to constantly tell me that people are not going to listen to you? And we can come up with a few reasons. We don't know which one it is, but maybe Ezekiel was just too scared to go. Uh, but I think probably, hmm, I bet Ezekiel was like me. Okay. I bet what Ezekiel thought was this. Okay. You say that now, but I'm pretty great. They'll listen to me, right? God tells you, look, I need you to be faithful and you're going to have no success. And Ezekiel's like, well, I'll probably have some success. So God goes, they're not going to listen to you. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's like, um, there's a whole bunch of things that they tell church planters. When you church plant, this is going to happen. And every one of us goes, that's not going to happen to me. And then it happens to all of us, right? It's just the human nature. We're all terrible people, right? And so I think that's probably what's going on. And so he says, look, you're not going to have success. These people are going to be very hard-headed and hard-hearted against you. But don't worry, because I made your head hard. <laughs> and you're, you know, it's the, the ancient version of, right, like, what is it? Uh, I'm rubber, you are glue, right? You know, whatever you say, bounce off me and sticks to you. I've made you hard, you know. They're going to come after you, but don't worry, because I'm going to strengthen you. Verse 12, and this, then the spirit lifted me up. Remember, this is a vision. So now he's, you know those, um, I'm trying to think, like there's one in The Big Lebowski, although I don't know if I'm allowed to admit that I've seen that movie uh, during a sermon, but um, The Big Lebowski, there's a scene where he gets high and he's like floating in the air, you know? A lot of movies have these like trippy psychedelic scenes where they're floating over the city or whatever. This is what's going on. Ezekiel is having this vision and now he, the spirit lifts him up and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me. Bless the glory of the Lord, so the, bless the glory of Yahweh in his place. So this is so weird. The spirit lifts him up, and he hears the um, the sound of the chariot with the throne room of God, or with the throne of God on it. And there's this really weird phrase here: "Bless the glory of Yahweh in His place." Doesn't fit this at all, except for what happened was Ezekiel is so overwhelmed with what he's seeing, he just sort of busts out in worship. And that's the whole idea of worship. It's the more I look at Jesus, the more I want to sing about it. The more I want to pray. The more I want to. Uh, worship him. It just like overflows. My favorite illustration for the idea of what is worship is, have you ever seen a really good movie that nobody else saw? And you just like, you, you go to dinner and you just can't shut up about it. And everybody's like, dude, shut up about this movie. We, you know, but that's what it is. You just, you want to share it. Or have you ever found a really good restaurant that you want everybody to eat at and you're telling everybody, that's what worship is. It just kind of flows out of you. Nobody says, hey, tell me what's this, you know, just it busts out of you. That's what happens here. He, hear, he looks up, he sees the throne room, and he just starts with this random phrase of worship. All right, verse 13. So with the sound of uh, the living creature's wings brushing against each other. So remember the throne room, these creatures have these big wings, and they're making a ton of noise. Um, and the sound of the wheels beside them, the loud rumbling sound. The spirit lifted me up, took me away. I left in bitterness and angry in spirit, and Yahweh's hand was on me powerfully. So he, he, he goes up and he sees this vision again of the, the throne of God and he hears the noise and it says, and then he leaves angry and bitter. So some folks think that Ezekiel is angry and bitter because God has now called him to do something he doesn't want to do. Like Ezekiel is a little Jonah. He's mad about the mission, but I don't think that's it because the verse right before this, what did he do? He sees the throne of God and he busts out and prays. So probably what's happening here is Ezekiel now looks at the glory of God, the beauty of this whole scene, the throne room and the, the glassy sea and the wheels and the cherubim and all this stuff, and he sees the light coming from the, the guy on the throne right, as he sees the glory of God on the throne. 
And he thinks to himself, how could our people have rebelled against this? How have our people, how could my people have told this God, we don't want anything to do with you? He's not mad because he has to tell the people that they're guilty rebels. He's mad because they are guilty rebels. And he was part of that. And he's thinking back. You ever had that moment of clarity when you think to yourself, how could I have done that to this person that I love or whatever? That's what he's, he's having that feeling times a million. And in that anger, it says, and the Lord's hand was on me powerfully. Yahweh's hand was on me powerfully. This, again, is an important detail in Ezekiel. Everything he does is empowered by God and God's spirit. Ezekiel is not a superhuman saint. He's just some guy that God goes, I'm going to use this guy, and I'm going to put my hand on him. And Ezekiel doesn't write this like he's bragging. His whole attitude is, everything that here is because the Lord did this through me. Verse 15, so I came to the, uh, to the exiles at Tel Abib who were living at the Kibar Canal, and I sat down among them, stunned for seven days. So all of a sudden, boom, vision's over. All right, you can imagine the movie scene, right? It's this big thing happening, and then pfft, all of a sudden now he's just sitting there. And what is his reaction? He's stunned, and he sits there for a week. Now, why a week? Why seven days? Well, um, seven days was the normal mourning period. So when somebody in the Jewish culture died, you had like a period of seven days of mourning. Some people think it's, that's what he was doing. Um, I think more likely is uh, when you become a priest on your 30th birthday, there's a period right after that of consecration. Remember, they had this whole system of pure and impure, holy, you know, um, clean and unclean. And you have to spend seven days doing this consecration stuff to become a priest. And most likely, probably what's happening is this is supposed to be his seven-day period of consecration from Leviticus 8. God is saying, you're a priest and a prophet, and I'm sending you to the people. But first, you're not near the temple, but you still need to do your seven-day consecration. And then at the end of the seven days of stunned silence, verse 16, now at the end of the seven days, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. Now, I grew up with two brothers, so I really understand the idea of a watchman. Because what we would do is something we weren't supposed to do, and we would make Ben. So we lived in this big farmhouse on the other side of San Francisco, like this 140-year-old house. And um, it didn't fit at all, right? Like the guy who owned this house used to own that whole neighborhood when it was a farm. That's the house I grew up in. And the downstairs of this house was this massive, like, basement kind of room. That was our room. To get to that room, though, you had to go down some stairs and then across this long hallway. And so whenever me and my older brother were doing something we weren't supposed to do, we made Ben stand in the hallway so he could hear if the door upstairs opened then mom was coming downstairs. He was the watchman. If mom came in that room and Ben didn't warn us, I would have beat him to death, right? That's how brothers work, <laughs> right? He would have received a pummeling. That's the idea of a watchman. It was the same thing in the ancient world. You would have people on guard towers outside the city or whatever, and they were supposed to watch for the enemy. And if the enemy... Uh, was coming, he's supposed to turn around and say, you know, uh, what's his name? Paul Revere, right? The British are coming. That was his job, right? If the watchman didn't do that, he would be in a lot of trouble. If the enemy showed up and he was up there sleeping, right? He's a terrible watchman. This is the imagery that God uses to tell Ezekiel what his job is going to be. Ezekiel, you are a watchman, which means you have to watch, you have to, you have to turn around and you have to tell the people that judgment is coming. So he elaborates on this in this next pretty long section here. When, verse 17, the middle of 17, when you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, 
but you don't warn him. You don't speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. Verse 19. But if you warn a wicked person and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity. But you will have rescued yourself. Now, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, I will put a stumbling block in front of him. He will die. If you did not warn him, he will die because of his sin. Yet the righteous acts he did will not be remembered. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn the righteous person that he should not sin and he doesn't sin, he will indeed live because he listened to your warning and you will have rescued yourself. So basically, he tells him, look, your job is not to figure out who might listen and who might not listen. Righteous, unrighteous, whatever. You need to tell everybody what I tell you. And you have a responsibility. Now, this, is, this passage gets overly uh, applied directly to us in the modern era. We have to remember that this was God dealing with the covenant people in the covenant of Moses, which is not around anymore. Right? He, ha- he was dealing with a specific people and a specific nation. And part of that deal that God had with these people involved legal ramifications Right, involved life and death situations. This literally is people uh, are going to die if you don't warn them. You know, it's, it's different than how, uh, how we deal with outsiders and that sort of stuff today. So this whole book deals with real life and death stuff. The Babylonians really are about to siege and destroy the city of Jerusalem. Real people are actually going to starve and die. And God tells Ezekiel, your job is to be a watchman. You are the one who sees the danger coming. And that puts a huge responsibility on you, Ezekiel, to share my message with the people. Once the message is shared, the responsibility for their life or death shifts from you to them. If they hear the message and they don't repent and don't, you know, whatever, then when the Babylonians come and kill them, which they will because I've already told you these people aren't going to listen, it's not on you. You're, it's not up to you whether people listen or not. Right? So the life or death part, we don't want to put too much weight on that because that's not directly applicable to us. But for Ezekiel, it was. All right, verse 22. The hand of the Lord was on me there. The hand of Yahweh was on me there. And he said to me, get up, go out to the plain, and I will speak with you there. So the, um, you guys know the Valley of Dry Bones? You know that part of Ezekiel? We'll get there. It's Ezekiel 30-something. Um, in the CSB, they translate that same word, the plain. It just means like there's the high up part, the mountains, and then the plain is down low. So this is the same spot he's going to go to a few different times in the book of Ezekiel, this valley. So he goes to wherever that, he says, get up, go out to the valley, the plain, and I'll speak with you there. So Ezekiel gets up and he goes out wherever this valley was, verse 23. So I got up, I went out to the plain. Yahweh's glory was present there, like the glory I had seen by the Kibar Canal, and I fell face down. So here at the end of chapter 3, Uh, It doesn't specifically say he had a vision. It's just he goes out to the valley, but we can assume, right, that he has another vision, just like he did by the Kibar Canal. And he sees, again, the glory of the Lord, just like he had seen back there. Uh, And just like at the end of chapter 1, here at the end of chapter 3, he falls face down again. And verse 24, again, dude, stand up. The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. God's like, hey, I I need you to be standing while I'm talking to you right now. Um, Uh... But again, the emphasis is on the power of the Spirit. And he spoke to me. He said, go shut yourself inside your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so you cannot go out among them. So go to your house. And then he tells him basically, 
your ministry is going to be tough. They're going to tie you up. It's, this is not going to be easy going for you. Who is the they that's going to tie them up? The exiles who are mad, the Babylon. It doesn't really say. It's just, I think it's a picture of this is going to be hard. And then the end of the chapter here, verse 26 and 7, right? That's the end, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, I will make your tongue. This is really weird, okay? This is one of the weirdest parts of the book of Ezekiel. I'll make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth, and you will be mute and unable to be a mediator for them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, this is what Yahweh Elohim, what the Lord God says. Let the one who refuses to listen, listen. And let the one who refuses, refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So this is where it gets really tricky. The expression, the verse 26 there, the um, tongue stick to the roof of your mouth was an ancient kind of idiom. It was an idiomatic way to say like a person can't talk. If somebody was mute, they would say, oh, his tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth. I don't know. That's just, you know, I didn't make it up. Right? That's what they would say. So here's probably what happened. Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel this ministry, this powerful prophetic ministry. At the same time, he makes him mute. So what most scholars think is, except for when he was speaking as a prophet, I have a message for you from God that you're a rebellious house and this and that and the other. And then they would ask a follow-up question and he couldn't talk anymore. Imagine the impact of that on his life. Just completely silent. He can't order food. He can't speak to his wife. We'll find out later he has a wife. He can't tell anybody about the vision at the Kibar Canal. Anything. And then all of a sudden, he's just been silent and silent and silent. He stands up. The Lord God says blah, blah, blah. And then he sits down and he's silent for another couple of months. This lasted, this muteness lasted for seven years in Ezekiel's life. We'll read until chapter 33 when the report comes of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And we find out, oh, by the way, then his, you know, he could talk again. He's back to normal. And then the book then shifts in chapter 23 from, uh, 33 from judgment to grace. And his mouth is open and he can talk again. All right, so that's kind of a really weird chapter, right? A really weird section. This whole first three chapters are totally weird. You've got the, the cherubim and the, 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 the throne and the glassy sea and all this stuff and this vision. And then God says, I have a mission for you. And when you read this stuff, though, I think it's easy for us sitting in church in 2023 to kind of wonder how come Ezekiel gets to go through all this kind of cool stuff. How come he gets to see the chariot? I've never seen the chariot of God, right? How come he gets to see the, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord? How come he gets to see all this stuff that makes him just bust out in worship? I think that's a good question to ask, right? We, we human beings have this sort of built-in um, need, the spiritual need that we're always trying to fill. Human history is filled with examples of people chasing some kind of a spiritual high. Uh, we all want to experience what Ezekiel went through in these first three chapters. Like, like um, you guys know anything about the Beatles? You know the Beatles? They were a band. Um, the Beatles are a great example of this. These guys, these clowns, I love how people treat the Beatles like they were uh, really smart and everything. When the truth is, they were like, what, a bunch of wife-beating drug addicts in their 20s. And, but anyway, they spent 
like most of the time as the Beatles chasing this spiritual high. These guys flew all over the world trying every sort of Eastern religion. They were into transcendental meditation and all kinds of Buddhist and Hindu stuff. And they were on LSD trying all these hard drugs. And when they, people asked them about it, their answers were always spiritual. They're after some sort of spiritual, what were they chasing, right? The same thing as everybody else, a feeling of contentment, a feeling of some kind of a spiritual high. Christians were just as bad. We had a whole industry uh, devoted to this. Spiritual discipline books that basically go, you should just try harder and then you'll experience God more. Or devotionals, right? You know how many devotionals I have? Too many. You know how many I've read? <laughs> right? These things are expensive. And, um, you know, I grew up in church. And, um, boy, the word that, like, gives me the most anxiety is quiet time or phrase. Right? If you grew up in church, you know about the anxiety that comes with the guilt that I didn't do my quiet time today, right? Or we have whole conferences and where people go chasing this kind of stuff. And we have music and uh, a lot of church music. If you've ever been there, I mean, me and Josue, we try to just be pretty plain. We play the songs and we sing them, right? There's nothing super fancy about it. Um, but a lot of church music is like very, like I watched a video the other day. I guess they figured out I play music in a church on YouTube. You know, YouTube knows everything about you. YouTube figured out I play music in church somehow. And the other day I watched a video that was like, the, um, the daily routine, the Sunday routine of a mega church musician. It was like, get to church at 4.30 a.m. And they run through the songs a bunch of times. And there's like a director who stands off on the side with a microphone talking in all their ears. Okay, everybody quiet. Like, it's very, it felt very manipulative what I was watching. Because nobody mentioned Jesus in this whole half-hour video, right? And it's all like, we, you know... We play the soft song so you really feel it. And then we play the loud song so you're excited. And we're very good at manipulating people. It's why I always skipped the youth group conferences when I was a youth pastor. I couldn't stand this stuff. Um, but we have, you know, we have all kinds of stuff that try to get us the spiritual high. Prayer journals from Etsy, you know, that some stay-at-home mom made. Um, people buy expensive goatskin Bibles with lambskin insides and Smithstone bindings with 28 GSM paper. Okay. Let's put this down here for a minute. Right? No, I'm just kidding. I have a lot of Bibles that are very expensive. Um, but in all of our efforts to try to reach this spiritual high, whatever we're trying to do, we're missing out on something huge. You see, here's the thing. Jesus' death, the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the West, we, tr we tend to think of it very individualistically, right? Um, it doesn't, the death, the work of Jesus, it doesn't just save us from sin, and then he doesn't just ask us to grow in our faith while we sit at home with our fancy Bibles and our devotionals on our Barca lounges, right? Just being super comfortable with our feet up and just learn as much as you can. What the death and resurrection of Jesus does is it brings us into his kingdom. And being part of that kingdom means you have a mission. It's not just how much can you learn. It's kind of like, what are you called to do? Okay, I don't remember learning to ride a bike. Does anybody remember? Did anybody learn to ride a bike as an adult? I'm just curious. One? No? Or later, you remember learning it? Yeah? I don't remember. I just, as far as I can remember, I always know how to ride a bike. I don't know. Okay. But if you're trying to teach somebody how to ride a bike, I remember learning how to ride a motorcycle. That was pretty fun until I got hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Um, anyway, you can't ride a bike without moving forward. You can't sit on, you can't say, I'm going to get really good at standing still on my bike 
And then once I'm good at that, I'll start rolling. That's not how it works. You stand still on the bike, you fall over, and you break your arm. Trust me. <laughs> uh, getting, you can, it's the same with faith. You can't say, I'm going to grow in my faith. I'm going to learn scripture. I'm going to do all this. And then I'm going to go work on sharing the message with the people around me that I love. Then I'm going to go work at loving the people around me. Getting out on the mission, being a missional kind of person, is one of the biggest things that God has given you to then also grow your faith. Ezekiel doesn't just have an experience of God. Do you get that? He didn't just see the throne room and then go home and his life was changed and, you know, but it was just for him. That's not what happened. He had this experience of God where then God said, now I have something I need you to do. And no doubt his faith was strengthened year after year after year in the whole bunch of years that he was a prophet as he moved forward in that mission. All right, so let me give you just kind of closing here in the next couple of minutes, three thoughts. The first is this. The pattern you need to learn is this. Take the gospel in, take the gospel out. Um, when in church planting to fundraise, and so people will like approve me to be a church planter and stuff, I had to write up a discipleship pathway. Now, what a discipleship pathway is like, how are people in your church going to grow? What does that look like? And I don't know. I made something up. And it was like a little circle, and you do this, and you do that. And then I've never talked about it since, and I don't even remember it. I did it because they made me. Okay, so it might have been on some of the literature I handed out at the very beginning of this thing because I had to put it there. Uh, but honestly, like, I don't know. Here's the new discipleship pathway, okay? Here's what you need to remember. Breathing. Okay, that's our new discipleship pathway. You breathe in the gospel, you breathe out the gospel. That's easy to remember, right? If I ever ask you now, we're going to talk about this now, I'm going to add this to the PAPS thing, but like, if we talk about discipleship pathway, we want to ask this question. How are you taking the gospel in, and how are you breathing the gospel out? And how do we breathe it in? We study scripture, and we listen to sermons, and um, we listen to podcasts, we read books, um, we, we talk about scripture in our community. Um, we show up, and our, our Sundays are organized to teach us the gospel, right? And we pray, and we fast, and we sit in silence and solitude, and we do all these things. That helps us take the gospel in. And then how do we breathe the gospel out is our Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff, right? If you don't know about Pabst Blue Ribbon, it's we pray for people, we ask them about their lives, we bless them in ways nobody else would, we share our story with them, and then we talk to them about the truths of the gospel. It's very easy to remember if you like cheap hipster beer, Pabst Blue Ribbon, right? So we breathe the gospel in we, through all of our church stuff, and then we breathe the gospel out through the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing. All right. Now, second thing. This only happens in the power of the Spirit. This is very important. Ezekiel keeps saying, and then the Spirit did this to me. And then the Lord, we'll see that phrase, and the hand of Yahweh was upon me powerfully, like a ton of times through the book of Ezekiel. The Spirit empowers you to learn the gospel. As I'm preaching these words now and we're going through this, I can only do so much to take this stuff and press it into your soul. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit takes these truths and pushes them into your soul. And it also, the Spirit, he also empowers us when we do the Pabst Blue Ribbon, loving and serving our neighbors. Thinking back, okay, here's the thing. Right, I'm just some guy. Trying my best be the pastor. I want to disciple and I want to do my best, but I'm also not infallible, right? I'm not Jesus. I'm just some guy who's reading his Bible and trying to teach it to you. As I was thinking about this and I was thinking back to the messaging I've used around Pabst, 
I'm afraid I may have sort of given the wrong impression that Pabst is something that you just need to suck it up and do on your own. But the more we think about the first part of Pabst, the prey, I think the more that will help us to realize what's really going on as we engage missionally with the people around us. The most important part of the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing is the first one, the praying for people. Be empowered by the Spirit. You can do everything right with that Pabst Blue Ribbon pathway and nothing happens. And you can try hard and really be terrible at it and the Lord can use you powerfully. Right? So that's the second thing. This only happens in the power of the Spirit. The third and final thing. Success in missional living can't be measured in numbers. Right? Um, Okay, this literally happened to me. I I was at a pastor's conference thing before we launched the porch. We were just a core team meeting at our house, right? A bunch of you were there. And I was at this pastor's thing, and I met this guy who had a mega church. His church had campuses. I think total they were like 10,000 people, something like that, big church. And he said to me, I met him, and he goes, oh, you're planting, cool. How big is your church? First thing he says to me, don't know this guy at all. And I said, well, we're just a core team. I don't know, there's like 15 of us right now. We're just getting started. He said, oh, and walked away. This guy, okay, that always rubbed me the wrong way. And then it turned out this guy's a total punk and guff. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it. (laughs) He's not a pastor anymore. But um, success in numbers, I mean, success in missional living can't just be measured in numbers. A lot of people go to church for a lot of really stupid reasons right, because of the fancy music or because of whatever. Now, obviously, we want numbers, don't we? We want as many people to come to faith as we can, but that's also not necessarily how we measure it. God specifically tells Zeke, right, he tells him, look, dude, you are not going to have success as you try to do this. It's, that's not what it's about. What it's about is loving me and living faithfully and bringing glory to my name, and we want to be faithful to the mission of God and then we let him do what he does. All right, so I have this big, long quote. This is how we're going to end, by reading this big, long quote, because I thought about paraphrasing this, but this guy, um, he just says it, talking about this passage. He puts this better than I can, so I'm just going to read this. All right, uh, let's see. See if you can follow along there, dude, clicking. Wait, did it go? Yeah, this is also in your uh, bulletins, your digital bulletins. All right, this is what he says about this. The faithfulness of this man's ministry cannot be measured in numerical terms. The primary goal of his ministry is not to see people converted, but to bring glory to God by preaching and modeling the message he's been given. As John Calvin put it, when God wishes uh, to move us to obey him, he does not always promise us a happy outcome to our labor, but sometimes he wants to test our obedience to the point that he will have us be content with his command, even if people ridicule our efforts. It's not to say that we should adopt a kind of reverse psychology whereby we assert that we must certainly be faithful if no one is coming, if no one is being reached by our message. That's important. He's saying, you don't want small churches like us to just be proud that we're small. That's stupid. And like, oh, we must be faithful because nobody's listening. That doesn't make any sense. We must labor to the utmost of our ability to remove any stumbling block that stands in the way of communicating the gospel, becoming all things to all men, so that by all possible means we might save some. <clears throat> Yet we do so recognizing that the work that a work of the Holy Spirit is necessary in the hearts of men and women if they are to become Christians. 
a work that is the sovereign prerogative of God to impart. At times, God opens the hearts of men and women to himself through the most unlikely messengers, like Jonah's uh, concise and not exactly heartfelt preaching to the Ninevites, where he just was like, repent, and you're all, all going to die, and he walked out. And then they all came to faith. So sometimes God goes, I'm going to use that guy. While at other times, the eloquent, uh, at other times, the eloquent pleading of God's messengers falls on deaf ears. This truth, and this is the last paragraph, this truth should be both a comfort and a challenge to us in our evangelism. On the one hand, sharing the gospel is far easier than we think. This is the good news. It's easier than you think. God is not limited by the weakness of my efforts. He can, if he chooses, save in spite of my incompetence. You can suck like Jonah and people will get saved. Right? You could be terrible at this. Um, at one, as one person put it, passing uh, on the good news is simply a matter of one beggar telling another where to find bread. That should motivate us to, be, to witness boldly for Christ wherever we go. On the other hand, however, sharing the gospel is far harder than we think. Even the most brilliant performance of, on my part may still, fall, uh, still fail to convince my hearers, not because they're dense, but because they're still dead in their transgressions and sins. That should motivate us to pray far more passionately than we do for those around us and around the world who are not Christians. So I love this, right? We should live in this tension like Ezekiel. Um, take the gospel in and let the Holy Spirit work in us and then take the gospel out and make his name great in the city. And then pray fervently that the work of the Holy Spirit will take root in the lives of the people around us. In the same way that his grace first worked in our lives. So we don't want to, we want like a ton of people to come to faith. But we also don't want to be arrogant and think that if we were just better, a ton of people would come to faith. What we want to do is just be faithful and then see what happens. And maybe God will work through us and a ton of people will come to faith. Maybe God will work through us and a couple of people will come to faith. Maybe God won't work through us at all and nobody comes to faith. But no matter what, we're not responsible for the outcomes. We're responsible for the faithfulness. We're responsible to be watchmen, to turn around and say, this is what's going on, people. Now you need to respond or not. That's the kind of church I want to be, right? This is our new discipleship pathway, right? What is it? Breathe. Breathe the gospel in, read the gospel out, and let the Lord do what he's going to do. All right, let's pray.